Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Bigger by 10,000 tons than any United States warship afloat, the huge dreadnought Iowa is ready for launching seven months ahead of schedule. The nation's first lady, Mrs. Franklin D. Roosevelt, attends the wartime ceremony. The wife of Vice President Wallace sponsors the Iowa, named in honor of her native state. Down the ways, the mighty vessel rides to the sea. Armament and batteries a naval secret, the Iowa is said to be the most powerful capital ship ever launched. Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Lines Love by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today uh, is Alice Caldwell-Kelly, host of pretty much... All of the podcasts podcast. that I listen to. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going? Pleased to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what? Kill James Bond, Trash Future. Well, there's your problem. Yeah, that's that's the three of them. Uh, <laughs> if, if I start a fourth one, it'll get like too unwieldy even for me. I honestly, I have to give you props because like I've often toyed around with like starting a second one on uh, after like one of my other weird mm. niche hobbies that I have. And every time I think about it, I'm like, no, I can't possibly do something else. So <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's not so bad. It's just like I got into this by accident. Like essentially, anytime I get bored on Twitter, I talk to someone and I'm like, "Hey, do you want to start a podcast?" And somehow this has worked out very well for me. I kind of started that way. I, I guessed on Hell of a Way to Die, a, another show we've both been on um, mm. and you know share a producer with um, years ago because I was you know selling my book, Cooligans of Kandahar, and I I was listening to that show. My friend Nick, who like I know in person, like I've known him for shit almost a decade now, I think. Mm. And we were drunk late at night watching like really bad, uh, I think formerly History Channel documentaries that had been put on YouTube. Mm. Like, and we were kind of like doing the mystery science theater bit to it. And another friend of ours like, you guys should just start a fucking podcast. Yeah, like, this podcasting can- shit easy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, you can't just start a podcast. And then I realized, <laughs> yeah, actually you can. Yeah, the barriers for entry in this are not high. It's one of the things I like about it. It's interesting that it's a platform where the barrier of entry is zero, but the ability to be whatever you consider successful is actually quite high. Mm, yeah. Because um, there's no like, I mean, you could get in some fucking network or whatever and Actually, we just had someone email us to get on a network, and I didn't realize how little they actually pay you. Really? Yeah, and I don't think they listen to the show. No one's going to allow us on the network in our current form. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're we're the show that invented the the, the Kandahar dick sucking factory. Nobody's giving us <laughs> ad money, you know. <laughs> yeah, the Kandahar dick sucking factory is brought to you by like I don't know Squarespace or whatever. <laughs> yeah, do you suck dicks in a factory? You know who else sucks dicks in a factory? <laughs> Our products and services this week. That's right. 
I once reached out to one company to get an ad, and they just straight up told me no. I think it would be funny, like <laughs> to get to get sponsorship, but from a company that like does not jibe with your brand at all. Like you know, pa- a paper towels company or something is, is bringing the <laughs> podcast. Like the American Red Heart Association or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, Alice, one of the many shows that you host is about engineering disasters. And I've been like trying to figure out some way to shoehorn getting you onto the show. Oh, I don't need a pretext. I'm just happy to come on. Because <laughs> we've already recorded together for probably like three or four hours. So like, obviously, oh, I'm yeah. like, I need, to, I need to get her over here. And I was like, I need to find an engineering disaster in the military since, you know, in military history, since that's what we do. Mm. And Liam and I already talked about the Comet, probably one of the best military machines ever invented for melting Nazis into a homogenate. <laughs> so I had to dig for something else. And I came up with what has to be the first cover up that I found in military history that doubles as a hate crime. Yeah. And that is the USS Iowa explosion. Yeah. Uh, two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> uh, you're sort of Hunt for Red October, Cold War Navy cover up. And also a bit of a bit of classic homophobia. Fantastic. And I've made jokes about this in the past, uh, kind of like offhandedly, because I was like, uh, I, th- I think it was during a bonus episode when I had Francis from Hell of a Way to Die On. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of like that time that the Navy blew up a boat through uh, like negligence and blamed it on the gays. Hmm. And that is kind of what like I thought I was simplifying it to be quite honest, and it turns out I wasn't. No, no, it's very much just like uh, this explosion. It's uh, homosexual in nature. <laughs> We've analyzed some of the particles. Yeah, <laughs> Naval Investigation Services um, has determined <laughs> has ascertained that the explosion was homosexual in nature. <laughs> and I have to say, this is probably the first time and only time in my podcast history that I'll say the FBI ended up being the voice of reason in the situation. Somehow, this happens occasionally. Like it's the same <laughs> thing with like the looming tower and like nine eleven stuff as well. Like you have FBI agents who seem like the sanest people in the room because everyone else in the room is like ice chewing CIA guys. Yeah, and I mean naval intelligence or investigative services or criminal investigative ser- or division at like they're calling the army or I think it's still NCIS or whatever and then Marines yeah, like I, don't, I don't remember. They're all inherently fucking awful at their jobs. Uh I mean as recent history has panned out. Well, would you would you like to know a, a little fact about the then NIS? Of course I would. So back in the days uh, before don't ask don't tell Someone at the NIS heard the expression a friend of Dorothy uh, to mean a gay man. And then they launched an investigation to discover the identity of this Dorothy, who was like making sailors and marines gay. And we're <laughs> unable to find Dorothy. So that that's the level we're dealing with here. I, I'm kind of unclear of, of the history behind Friends of Dorothy myself. To be completely honest. It might be the Wizard of Oz. I think it might be like a a Judy Garland reference. I don't know. It's pretty like old fashioned now, but (sighs) that that sounds like something they would do. I mean, in my experience, I was in the army, so we had to deal with CID who notoriously pretty much only existed to bust you for drugs. Mm. Now they exist to cover up sex crimes and murder on Fort Hood mostly. Also, one CID agent recently murdered his wife with a neurotoxin. From a puffer what? fish. Yes. Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he got from Haiti of all. He had a, he had a puffer fish, a puffer fish toxin guy. <laughs> <laughs> Just incredible. 
So to take us back in time for when the USS Iowa and the Iowa class battleships were a thing, this boat in particular, the Iowa is a class of ships and the USS Iowa is a ship within that class. Um, mm-hmm. and for, of course, named after the noted ocean going state, Iowa. Well, like this was, they were a replacement for the, well, an augment to the South Dakota class, another famously <laughs> like a nautical state. So <laughs> they have to name the ships after states like, uh, so everybody in them remembers that, that we still know they exist. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was first ordered in 1939 and then launched in 1942 and saw service all the way, kind of, sort of, until 1990. Now, there were ships in the class, like specifically the Missouri, that fought in the Gulf War. Mm -hmm. But the Iowa did not, for reasons that will become abundantly clear shortly. But this is a really long lifespan for a battleship, because, you know, rightfully, when we think of battleships, we think of, like, World War I and II, Mm -hmm. or dreadnoughts in World War I, but whatever. And, like, the USS Iowa has some history. It was the boat that uh, FDR rode in uh, when the USS William Porter kept trying to kill it. Oh, fuck. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Which we did just do a bonus episode on. uh, Like, honestly, legitimately, one of my favorite ships in the Navy is the Porter. (laughs) It fought in the Pacific, Atlantic. uh, It fought in the Korean War. And it was eventually worth 11 battle stars. And it also got nicknamed the Big Stick. Which, of course, I have to mention for obvious reasons. Yeah, for, you know, Teddy Roosevelt appreciation, of course. I, yeah. And the thing about the, the, the Iowa classes, right, is that they're, they're, they're fast battleships. And by fast, I mean six knots faster than, uh, like, the previous generation of battleships. That's the only, like, important thing about them, for the purposes of our story, is that they were designed to, like, lead a fast strike force in the Pacific, uh, which, at that point, carriers were still going to be, like, uh, supportive to a battleship. Right. That's their only thing. It's like, we added, you know, a hundred tons of armor or whatever and and engineering works for six more knots in speed, and then we're going to, like, win the war against Japan and then forget about these. But history is not done with you yet if you make a fast (laughs) battleship. Uh, and, you know, they're interesting fucking ships. Like, I, I was a tank crewman, so I understand why people are in love with gigantic metal antiquities that probably don't need to exist anymore. I get it. Yeah, con- confined spaces that you, like, live in that also inexplicably have, like, uh, you know, a, a large gun attached to them. Sure. Yeah, and it's fucking awesome. Like, I have no, I have no like, academic way to explain why it's really cool other than, like, big cannon goes boom and you feel it in your chest. It <laughs> uh, feels like your eyes are being peeled out of your head. Uh, and we have a battleship. Like, I, I currently live in Oahu, Hawaii, and um, we have uh, an Iowa-class battleship here as part of one, of one of the Pearl Harbor memorials. And I don't know how to explain that it's simultaneously massive, but also smaller than you'd imagine when you see it up close. Mm. Yeah, the big thing is the guns, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, they're huge. A modern like naval gun, like the one that you have on the the foredeck of like you know a, a frigate or a destroyer or whatever, that's a five inch caliber. And the Iowa class had, I, th- I think, like some outrageous number of five inch guns, and then batteries of sixteen inch guns. Yes, and <laughs> th- those are so powerful that like when they reactivated them. One of the concerns was you can't put any like radar and any like sensitive electronics within two hundred feet of the barrel because like the the overpressure will just fry it. Yeah, I, I have no way to explain how dumb and awesome that is at the same time. Each turret has almost fifty people in it. Mm. 
Yeah, and I was are. in a turret with three people in it. I'm like, there's too many people in this fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right, one of you has to get out and walk. The only downside is if you get rid of one of us, it was going to be me because I was almost always the loader and auto loaders are fucking garbage. <laughs> so like, <laughs> you need me more than the gunner. Now, as you can imagine, we're talking about like the namesake of battleships, uh, the Iowa and all of the ships like it, that their time passed it by, you know, by the 50s, mm. by the time it was fighting the Korean War, it was reduced to a support role. It was providing ground fire, sure, but it was not exactly the heyday of the Iowa class battleship. No, battleships were obsolete after Pearl Harbor. Like, I'll, I'll fight people about that. Like, after Pearl Harbor, it's a, it's a carrier war, and then uh, battleships are there as sort of this legacy technology for uh, senior officers who want to be like knights of the sea and like ride into battle with a cutlass. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like, when I was first enlisting, I walked into the Navy office, and I was like, I want to be in a fucking battleship, and they're like, kid, is 2005, we don't have those anymore. <laughs> I'm like, well, I will take my business next door then. <laughs> by Korea, it was pretty obvious that they didn't really need these anymore, uh, and that's why by 1958, the Iowa and most like it were decommissioned, the, I- the USS Iowa specifically at the Philly Naval Yard. Uh, and then sent to the Naval Reserve Fleet, which always looks very funny to me because they kind of like mm. build giant piers out of dead old ships uh, attached by a tug. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like kind of haunting. You can see all of these ships just tied up together. And uh, uh, it's, it's on the West Coast. I want to say it starts with an S, one of the bays out there. Yeah, I believe you're correct. I, th- I think there's more than one. Um, there's mm. like the Reserve Fleet. Um, there's a different reserve fleet that's mostly like transport ships. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like one's, uh, I don't know, the, the name is escaping me. But one is like the ready reserve, ones that they can turn around within like a month or so. And the other one's mm-hmm. like, no, nah, if you need to use these, you might <laughs> as well just launch nukes. There's like different expectations of longevity, right? Because you think about those and you think about like the aircraft graveyards that they have out in like Nevada or Arizona, <laughs> right. right? Where like they take the wings off and they're just rusting, right? But like, if a ship hole's still like you know watertight, you've still got like something there that you can you can make use of, maybe. Yeah, Even 50, 50 years after the fact, the naval reserve fleet was established, I believe, after World War One, and during that time, the reserve fleet meant ships were still actively being used, just on a much reduced schedule, and it was almost always transport ships. Mm. Personally, as I've learned doing this show and you know going through. Uh, grad school now logistics is a lot more important than i remember it being when i was a dumb teenager soldier (laughs) who did not do logistics right so like you know Mm. whenever we start a war say like korea or vietnam or whatever the fuck we end up doing next week you end up having to activate a whole bunch of logistics platforms and like in korea i think limited scale vietnam we ended up activating a lot of the naval reserve uh fleet uh mostly Mm. transport ships like there was liberty ships in this thing i think until the 90s yeah Uh, uh, but generally it's not battleships because like or warships in general um and you know in the reserve fleet it's a lot like the naval reserve in general it's a repository of mostly useless shit that if we ever have to use it something seriously stupid happened so uh, like the simpsons joke america's 26th line of defense between the ohio <laughs> national guard and the league of women voters <laughs> yes um and you know there's a reason why that is the case um I've, transport ships 
ships are different, but when it comes to warships, reactivation is a pain in the ass. Um, the reason for mm-hmm. this is pretty obvious. Most ships are badly out of date when the U.S. finally gets out around to mothballing them. We tend to hang on to shit for way too long. And even after you have mothballed them, like when you put them in, in reserve, you can't just like turn the lights off and leave, right? You, <laughs> you strip all of the useful shit out of them first. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, you, you turn the light off in the garage and you let the door slowly close <laughs> as you throw your leather jacket over your shoulder and look emotionally over your shoulder as you uh, watch the ship disappear. Yeah. Yeah. And there is some maintenance that's done to these ships, but it's almost entirely like enforced by the EPA uh, hmm. because they're still like they don't necessarily have fuel in them, but they have other fluids like hydraulic fluid and other things that will absolutely leach into the sea. Um, mm. not good for the ocean. Not that the Navy generally gives a fuck about that. Uh, uh-huh. but they, they have to do maintenance. So they just don't fucking rust into the water. Um, but it, yeah, it, everything useful is stripped out, uh, sitting there for a long period of time being eaten by salt water is generally not good for a boat. And as anybody's paid attention to recent history in the U S Navy, we tend to have boats that actually don't do well when they're wet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, now, enter Secretary of the Navy, John F. Lehman. It was his notorious 600-ship Navy uh, idea of the 1980s. Yeah, classic Reagan shit. Uh, yeah. We're, we're going we're gonna to confront the Soviet Union militarily. And we're, in order to do that, we're going to double the size of the U.S. Navy. Because it's what, uh, like, uh, I want to say 300 and, you know, 310 maybe? Yeah, it was damn near doubling. It was a main plank of Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign. And like most things the U.S. Navy does, it was overpriced, pointless, and a hilarious failure. (laughs) And I do have to point out here, like like Alice, you already said, this is the counter of the Soviet Navy. And if there's one thing that I've learned from having family members who have served in it (laughs) and learning about it myself, the Soviet Navy has only ever been a threat to the people serving in it. Yeah, and especially like the Soviet surface fleet. Um, <laughs> like th- this was in part because the Soviets had had introduced the Kirov class. Uh, it, we would call it the battle cruiser. It's a it's a guided missile cruiser to them. Um, and it's like no, n- nobody in the U.S. Navy in the 1980s was worried about the Soviet surface fleet. Soviet submarines, absolutely sure. That was one of the things that they did very well. But I, I promise, no one was losing sleep about the Kirov class. Uh, and yet, this was enough justification that in order to like have a hard counter to these boats, you have to have um, you have to bring back the sort of the legends. <laughs> Careful, they might roll up the was it the Katuzov on you? <laughs> <laughs> That's legit, like unironically, my favorite boat ever because it's a lot like the Katuzov is a platypus of naval ships. And that, mm. it, it, by all means, it shouldn't exist, and it probably should have died out a long time ago. Uh, like it, it catches on fire all the time. It has to be like escorted by three or four tugs because it breaks down so often. <laughs> it eats crewmen. Like, <laughs> yeah, all of these, all of these run on like bunker C. So you can like there, there are these photos that like some Soviet crewmen took in in, in the eighties off of like a film camera of uh, all of these racings lying on the on the flight deck sunbathing. Right um, of, of of the Soviet carrier, and just this plume of like black oily smoke above them uh, for, from the engines. So yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely a joke, really. 
pure Soviet energy all around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really strange the like the reason why the Kirov class existed in the first place. It was like part of this um like sort of distaste for, for large carriers in the in the Soviet Navy. I, I think that's like a, a carrier thing in general, and I'd like to go off on too much of a carrier tangent. To be to be fair, I don't know a ton about them. I just know that they're a gigantic resource pit, mm. uh, which is why the U.S. has so many of them. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, it's a prestige thing, uh, but mm. like you know, the only other very dumb countries go out of their way to attempt to build a modern aircraft carrier because I mean, unless you're doing imperialism, there's really no point, right? No. Like. You 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 can you just have ground based aircraft and of course ballistic missiles and now you know space weapons being a thing or at least we're working on it like <laughs> there's really no point unless you're gonna go I don't know like roll this shit up to the Persian Gulf to go do like Boogaloo number three <laughs> yeah no which is exactly uh, what they use the Katuza for actually <laughs> 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 like look we can still use it we pulled it up to Syria. I think the Kirov class may actually be worse because instead of bunker oil, I think they may actually have nuclear reactors, which is <laughs> oh, just shit. wild. <laughs> uh, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, isn't the Katusa front of Mazut? Yes, yes, Mazut. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Incredible! Like shit, you wouldn't even use to like heat your house. Well, they have to, the, the the funny thing is they have to preheat it because it's basically tar, right? And so, in order to like even be able to burn it, they have to they have to heat it up to a point where it's sort of liquid enough first. So it's basically running off of almost solid fuel. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful! I love this machine. It's so stupid. It's like if someone actually invented a Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> a Gundam that runs on coal. Um, now, obviously, 600 ships is a lot of fucking ships. It's a big-ass navy. I don't know if another navy has ever existed that's been bigger outside of like counting transport ships and liberty ships and shit like that. Yeah, having 600 like warships, That's I think that's probably unprecedented. Yeah, you, and, at and, least since the days that you could build them out of wood. And there's a reason for that, because even with the the literal infinity sign of dollars that the Department of Defense gets in the United States, even we weren't able to, to pull this off. Uh, and what they tried to do it, it, to, to hit this number, which they never would. I think they got the 500 and something. Still, it's a ridiculously high number. But mm. the way they did it was reactivating the entire Iowa class from the reserve fleet, which had been floating there since, again, the late 1950s as well as keep older ships in service for longer, way past their service date, which kind of sounds like to me, if you were going to flex on like your neighbors by I don't know, expanding your house, but you did it by using like load-bearing drywall, <laughs> you built yeah, Grover absolutely. House. <laughs> the, other, the other big plank of the 600-ship Navy was like building the Nimitz-class carriers faster, uh, but yeah. the problem was that they were, they were so large and so expensive and so complex that they kind of proved resistant to all attempts to hurry them, which is very funny to me. And there's like another downside to this that will become important later is when you activate these old ships or keep other older ships in service, they're just in money sinks. Like They cost mm. way more money to maintain because they have a lot more problems. With that, the USS Iowa came out of the reserve fleet, having set out through the ocean since 1958, doing nothing. And it would require extensive overhauling since military technology 
had changed quite a bit since 1958. Yeah, you, you go from like, where do we put the computers from? Uh, this is the computer room, the room where we keep the computer. It's called by Paul. <laughs> he has a block of ice and a tub and he fans on it. <laughs> the ship had to be virtually gutted, having new electronical systems put in, electrical systems, fire, radar control systems, a phalanx close-in weapon system, Tomahawk cruise missiles, harpoon anti-ship missiles, as well as uh, they had they had the ability to launch RQ-2 Pioneer drones, which I'm going to assume are just fucking dog shit because this is the late 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, literally, what, what they did with those was they launched them with a like a rocket assist. Uh, and then they they would they would fly they would spot for naval gunfire come back and then the crew would have to catch them in a net. Oh, that's even dumber than the one I had to use. Uh, there was this thing called a puma. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's, no, I don't think so. Now, granted, this is well close to a decade ago. My last, actually, fuck, it was a decade ago. My I got back from Afghanistan in 2012. So um, it's a drone that has a camera on it. There's no weapon systems on it. That's mm. mostly styrofoam. <laughs> That a soldier can like throw like a fucking football uh, and then, well, one throws it, the other one tries to control it with like an actual control thing. Mm. And what generally happens is it creams wildly off course because your arm is not the most stable launching platform. <laughs> and then you lose it somewhere in a cornfield uh, somewhere and it's full of sensitive items that you can't let the enemy capture. So like yeah. every hour or so like, oh, we dropped the Puma again. Everybody has to get their trucks and go get it. Um, <laughs> right. Fantastic. Yeah. So, no notes. W- well done. I don't think they use it anymore. Um, <laughs> and we were in Kandahar City. So like we were surrounded by not exactly skyscrapers, but like tall buildings. And mm. we threw it and almost nine times out of ten had crashed into one of the buildings. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all of this was actually surprisingly uh, not as expensive as you'd imagine retrofitting a, a, a full naval ship. It cost half a billion dollars per Iowa class. Hmm. Which you know, looking at how the U.S. military spends money, that's a that's that's a budget right there. Yeah, it's a bargain. Yeah. Uh, on, on the other hand, in like real terms, it's enough to like have I don't know, like healthcare or whatever. But like, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you get one, and you don't get to pick it, and it's not the healthcare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like you you can see they're kind of trying to follow the the care of class thing of like, okay, well, we have like a what amounts to a battleship, but we use it for for guided missile launches, just on the off chance this is a good idea. Like, maybe, just in case the Soviets, like, steal a march on us. And on a, it really did seem like this was uh, slapped together by a whole bunch of guys who probably were still in the military during the Korean War. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they had, like, a picture of an IO class on the wall and just had sticky notes with new shit on it. <laughs> there, there was a lot of nostalgia for these. Like when, when they announced that they were recommissioning these, um, they got a, a ton of like applications from guys who had served in Korea, uh, who had like uh, w- were trying to rejoin the navy so they could be like assigned to these again. Yeah, and there was um, a fair amount of like really old uh, non-commissioned officers um, who were allowed back in because like they they realized they had a problem. No one knows how to use these fucking guns anymore. No, except uh, for this seventy-five-year-old master chief. Uh, th- this will bring us other problems, uh, which will, you know, there's a reason why no, we're talking won't. about this no, event. It it's fine. It's fine. That shit'll buff out. Yeah. <laughs> now, not only did they deliver this at a half billion dollars, which is actually below budget, they delivered this ahead of schedule. Um, which, if you're 
new to the show or the 21st century. Ahead of schedule and under budget in the U.S. military are not two things that go together. (laughs) And there's a reason why the Iowa is able to do this. The way they managed to slide under the gate in regards to delivering costs was simply not repairing the engine or any of the turret-mounted 16-inch guns, all of which were very, very broken. Yeah, you, you just in in your in your quarters, and you're like, I, "Can I see uh, waves through the floor? Should I, <laughs> should, should, should I be should I be able to do that?" It's it's when they rebuilt a uh, Flanders's house. Like, careful at the load bearing poster. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's that. It actually got worse somehow. So there's a rundown process you have to go through with these ships, um, and which requires a naval board inspection uh, to to make a ship seaworthy. They just skipped it. Yeah, I mean vibes only. Listen, this this ninety year old master chief who's like won't stop talking about his time with Spruance in the Pacific. He says it's fine. So like, yeah. Don't worry though, Alice. They did take it two years later in 1986. It oh, failed. Well, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very much, very much me in law school vibes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, unlike me when I fail something, the Navy didn't quit. Uh, they, just, <laughs> they just kept going ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, just a quick rundown, and this is not an exhaustive list of all the things that were wrong uh, with it, but these are the like what I considered the most important things that I could find that was wrong with it, as someone who does not understand boats. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the ship was unable to achieve the top speed of 33 knots during a full-power engine run, and when they did, the engine stalled. <laughs> and this this was part of the rationale for getting them back in the first place, was that they were the only, like old ship they still had that could keep pace with like a carrier or like a modern destroyer. Yeah, and it's also funny that the engine just died. Like this isn't like my shitty car where you can just like <laughs> attempt to start it again. Yeah, there's a um, guy like climbing up there with some starting fluids and you just have to like spray that in there and hope for the best. And so other problems included uh hydraulic fluid leaks in every turret. Uh, which totaled to 55 U.S. gallons per turret per week. (laughs) And I've had it like there's a fuckload of hydraulic fluid in tanks, and uh, you don't want that leaking everywhere. It just gives you cancer. (laughs) Like Mm. It it burns your skin. Um, So Cosmoline, which I had no idea what that was. I had to look it up. It's an anti-corrosion lubricant. It's this pink grease. They (laughs) use it to like store rifles long term, too. Yeah, um, you normally need to like clean that out and reapply it because it hardens. Mm. You want to guess what they hadn't done since 1958? <laughs> Literally, like like a fucking like Mosin Nagant that you buy off the internet. They just didn't clean the. Co- oh, no. <laughs> they also had deteriorated bilge piping, which led to bilge pumps, which meant it just flooded and they couldn't pump the water out. Yeah, you're just like in this turret, and you're like at ankle level in like a, a sort of slurry of cosmoline, hydraulic fluid, and like seawater. Fantastic. That's actually uh, how I'm starting my new ne- my new sex club. Is like <laughs> no lights. Don't worry about the fluids. You're fine. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And unfortunately, also like my new sex club, it had uh, horrible wiring problems that constantly started <laughs> fires. <laughs> um, all kinds of pumps failed, uh, so occasionally just wouldn't be able to turn. Mm-hmm. 
There's unrepaired soft patches on high-pressure steam lines, which occasionally just exploded. And the firefighting system, which is probably the most important safety system in any boat, was just didn't work. Uh, The valves were all rusted over. Um, so it's 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 a death trap. <laughs> they created a death trap. Um, now, if that wasn't enough, the actual package to fix all of this was quite affordable. It was only like a million dollars. And as far as, you know, defense spending goes, that's a fucking steal. So yeah, absolutely. They canceled it. Of course. Listen, you have to make those savings somewhere. You got to spend those those million dollars somewhere. You'll really feel them uh, like designing a more efficient shower curtain or something. Yeah, have you tried just shoveling it into a fire? Uh, <laughs> this fire just has, like, U.S. Air Force labeled above it. <laughs> now, the Navy itself, that being, like, admirals that actually had to manage this piece of shit, was like, you know, we need to take this thing out of service, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody agreed, other than the Secretary of the Navy himself, who stepped in to make sure that was not done. That's civilian oversight for you. You, you elect Reagan, and that, that's what you get, you know? Yeah, I don't get me wrong. I'm the last person in the history of the show and my life to give credit to general officers. But like, <laughs> for once, I was like, no, he, he, he nailed it. The Secretary mm-hmm. of the Navy refused and instead used some of the money that was meant to uh, fix everything and just fix the engine. Uh, and that was considered good enough. That was yeah, it. Just, just get it running again. Like it's a truck at the end of like a junkyard, you know? <laughs> now... This didn't stop the crew of the USS Iowa from going out to gunnery practice, mind you, with all of these problems that I just named. And like I said, there's a crew of um, mostly NCOs and very, very junior ranking gunnery officers and stuff. But mostly Mm -hmm. the the NCOs kind of knew what they were doing. They didn't have the most experience in this kind of boat, but they had enough experience on ships in general and in the Navy and dealing with like junior enlisted seamen that they're like, this is not a good idea. Uh, like this just shit's gonna kill somebody yeah fire control officers are badly inexperienced and ignoring all of the warnings given to them by the junior leaders um and like like we talked about earlier a little bit like these guns are so big that you need to make sure that there's nothing nearby them when you fire otherwise they'll just destroy it mm-hmm. um turret two which will become the problem turret um not that the turret itself was inherently worse than any of the other ones it's just very yeah, the, unlucky the cursed turret yes. <laughs> yeah when it fired during the first gunnery drill uh with its crew the fire control officer didn't actually realize that it was too close to turret one um because there's no safety mechanism in place to stop this from happening for some reason oh of course you know because the ship was made in 1939 and nobody gave a shit about safety no god no so the concussion from the 16-inch guns going off shredded turret one's uh, gun bloomers, which I had no idea what that was. I had to look it up. It's like a canvas cover to make sure like dirt and debris doesn't get into the turret, which causes all mm. sorts of hell with the, the mechanical elements. Uh, but that's not even the most serious thing that happened. It damaged turret one's electrical system. Uh, there's a guy named Dan Meyer, who was a gunnery NCO on board in that turret said that shooting of the cans is, quote, the most frightening experience I've ever had in my life. The shockwave <laughs> blew out the turret officer's switchboard and the leads. We had no power. We had no lights. Men were screaming. We all thought we were going to die. Jesus <laughs> Christ. And I need to remind you, they are the lucky turret. This is turret one. Mm-hmm. These, yeah. are, these, these guys are very lucky. 
Now, no matter what anybody who actually had to work with these guns said, anybody of any given rank outside of like officer level was like, we need to like not fucking use these things. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody listened to them. Um, this got to the point that in April of 1989, when they're getting ready to uh, go take part in a fleet exercise, Senior Chief Reggie Ziegler told his wife that when he died, and he thought it was going to be soon, that he wanted to be buried at sea. Another crewman, specifically in Turret 2, told his sister, quote, I'm not thrilled with some of the things that we're doing on Iowa. We shouldn't be doing them. Something is going to go wrong. Great. That did like absolutely some well there's your problem ass uh like letters to write home there. Yeah, hundred percent. Now on April nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, turret two of the IO was tapped to take part in a gunnery exercise where they would be doing an experimental kind of shooting, which we will get into. Just of course you just read a date, which means it's gonna get worse. Yeah. Uh it always does. Hmm. Now, the person running this experiment was warned ahead of time that the compressed air system in turret two was not working. Now, that didn't mean anything to me because I don't know shit about naval guns. Now, in a tank mm. gun, which is a smoothbore cannon, I guess the same kind of mechanism as a, as a, as a ship's gun. I guess some of them are rifled. Mine was smoothbore. You don't have to worry about these sort of things. It's all self-contained with propellant and the warhead. Mm-hmm. But when you have, you know, a separate gun charge and a warhead, you have to worry about sparks and debris and things like that. Sure. And debris that could burn was one of the biggest health hazards they could have because, you know, if something's on fire in the breach and you load a new powder charge, you just created a fucking bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a compressed air system that blows in compressed air, blows out anything that could be in the barrel out. That did not work. Just have to make extra double sure that there's nothing in the barrel, including any air. You just have to task the lowest raking sailor to stick his head up the barrel and go. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a guy with like a really, really lo- like a 16 inch diameter ramrod. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is probably one of the more important safety features they had. Uh, they were warned that it didn't work, and the guy running the experiment simply didn't see this as a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, To make things worse than they possibly could be, it was decided that a very, very specific uh, lot number of gunpowder would be used. Now, the reason why is because it was getting old. Now, this lot number numbered D846, which will unfortunately become very important, Uh uh, dated all the way back to 1942. What the fuck? Jesus Christ. That's so... And of course, the most uh, sort of like military decision, which is this thing is insanely dangerous. Let's get rid of it as soon as possible by using it. And then it's not our problem anymore. Uh, it's, it's downrange's problem. Yeah. Um, and according to naval regulations at the time, this actually wasn't considered unsafe. And <laughs> okay. maybe under normal procedure, it would have been usable. But we're going to get into why this was a problem. Now, this powder was considered safe as long as you use it as you were supposed to use it, which was mm. using the bags of powder to fire a standard 1,900-pound, 16-inch shell. Guess what they're not going to do? <laughs> because it's an experiment, and therefore, they're going to experiment, and they're going to fire something different, right? Yeah. Now, there's a reason for this, which makes sense if you have nothing to do with this, and if you weren't warned ahead of time, which everybody was. 
Um, every kind of powder lot and powder type has its own kind of characteristics. Um, and the person running the experiment, who's a master chief fire controlman named Steven Skelly, knew. And that is why he specifically used this powder for the experiment, because this lot number of powder was known for burning very, very fast, which would exert more pressure on the shell, which is going to be a dummy, non-explosive shell. Mm -hmm. This extra pressure would then cause the shell, of course, to fly further than it normally would, meaning he was working on experimentation using these old ass guns to fire further and somehow more accurately than ever before. Mm. Now, here's where this immediately crosses the barrier from, okay, this kind of makes sense to you're going to kill someone. Skelly's plan for turret two was not to fire the 1900 pound shell. It was to fire 10, 2700 pound practice projectiles. Two from the left gun, four rounds each from the center and right guns, all from turret two of the ship. Each shot was to use five bags of D eight, four, six, Instead of the six bags normally used, he decided that was all he had to do in the name of safety was just subtract a bag. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> just, just eyeball it. It's fine. And if you're looking at that safety thing, it's like, okay, fine, whatever. Um, maybe this is fine if you're like, I fucking it or whatever. Or maybe it's say, hypothetically, if there wasn't some gigantic warning on the powder bags itself not to use them that way. <laughs> so Alice this is where I get to tell you there's a gigantic warning in the powder bags itself that told you not to use them this way listen if, if, if everybody read the warnings and the safety directions nothing would ever get done so <laughs> just because it says in big red letters don't do this uh, that, that's, that's obviously you know who's, who's going to pay attention to that and this has to be the most exact warning ever printed on a product uh, or or material. Because of me, there's a warning now. <laughs> it said, quote, warning, do not use a 2,700 pound projectiles. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, mm, okay. And, and, and they did. But they fine. did. Yeah. Um, now this will become important later because there were actually other, probably more serious problems. Mainly that problem came down to the crew and the ship itself. Hmm. Training and morale within the USS Iowa was dog shit since it had been reactivated. This is mostly because serving on the ship was fucking miserable. These guys all enlisted in the Navy in the 80s and got stuck in this shit from the fucking 30s. <laughs> Life sucks. Yeah, and, and like you, you walk into a Navy recruiting office in, in the mid-80s, what do you want to be doing? You want to be doing Top Gun shit, right? Like, Yeah, you want to be in a battleship or you want to like maybe if you really hate yourself, be in a submarine. Mm. Yeah, yeah, if you, if you want to like breathe like uh 200 dudes other like farts for like six months you'd you be in a submarine but like you don't want to you don't want to be doing this right you don't want to like be living on some shit that was like austere in the fucking 40s when mm -hmm. you're used to ships that are significantly newer and you know not falling apart around your ears um and another problem was because the ship was such a piece of shit they couldn't train like Everything's broken all the time. So the Navy simply didn't train most people. Uh, their training was subpar at best. A lot of people simply didn't have any. Now, Senior Chief Ziegler, who served inside Turret 2, rest in peace, homie. Uh, spoiler, <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> where the testing would be going on was worried because his entire crew had virtually no experience. Many had only fired maybe once. Uh, and the center gun's ca gun captain, gunner's mate second class, Clayton Hartwig, who was considered the most senior. And that's not a very high rank, I should point out. No. 
had just been taken off duty because he's getting ready to move to a new duty station in the UK. So like they had an even newer, more inexperienced gun captain in place. So Ziegler asked Hartwig, hey, man, I'm kind of nervous. Could you take your old spot back? And Hartwig, obviously, is voluntold situation. He didn't really have mm-hmm. a say in the matter. So he did. Now, the most important of these turret jobs and was the most dangerous was the rammer man. And this is because essentially it boils down to if you fuck your job up, everybody will die. Hmm. I, I may be a product from when the ship was built. There's simply no safety mechanism in place to make sure you did not kill everybody. For example, uh, it takes a lot of force for the mechanical ram to push a 2,700-pound shell into position, way mm-hmm. more than it takes to hit a bag of powder into place in the right depth and, and, and positioning. Yeah, you, you have to like hit this explosive with a big hammer and not detonate the explosive. Yeah, and there's a problem inherent with this. Mechanically, there should be something like, hey, you did not load a shell. This is a powder bag. We're not going to let you move this rammer into place because of the weight is, is so far off or whatever. Mm. But there was nothing like that. There's nothing stopping the rammer guy from incorrectly using the rammer arm and smashing into powder bags as hard as you would a shell. The only thing stopping the rammer man from committing mass accidental homicide was simply knowing how to do his job, which I I don't know how I can underline this enough. That's never the safety you want in place in the military. No. Fucking never. <laughs> At least in the 40s, they trained you to do that. Like, I feel like a lot of these things are just because in the design is sort of like like this assumption from the 1930s 1940s navy that like naval gunnery is a core skill uh, we have like this sort of basis of technical stuff there that will enable guys to be able to negotiate this successfully without us having to put all of these like safety interlocks and stuff there and then they reactivate it in the 80s when no one's ever seen one of these things except <laughs> in a museum yeah i think they maybe had some like mock-ups to train on Great, fantastic! I, I, I've been to like a, I, I've seen the DVD, and now I know which end the fire is supposed to come out of. And as a consequence, I'm now ready to like uh, push the big rammer button. You're probably old enough to remember um, when like self defense DVDs were sold. It's just like that. <laughs> I'm a black belt now. It's fine. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, now this is where I get to say the line of "This is where it gets worse." Uh huh. None of the Iowa's rammermen, especially the one in turret two, had any training or experience ramming non-standard five bag loads into the guns. Um, now, complicating the task as the rammerman was shoveling the bags in, he was also supposed to simultaneously operate a lever to shut the powder hoist door off and lower the powder hoist car. There was no mechanism to do this. There was no safety. You just had to do it all at once. Hmm. Uh, again, bad idea. But it's fine. You can you can just have like a essentially a dumb waiter filled with explosives <laughs> yeah. waiting there just just in case because like you want to like tease the possibility of a sympathetic detonation, right? Yeah, and like honestly, it, it boggles my mind. I know I keep comparing it to tanks, but like literally everything in my tank moved on its own. If I smash something into place, mm. like I hit the blast doors with my leg, it opens. I pull the shell out, the blast door closes on its own. I shove it into the breach, the breach closes on its own. And I just have to get the fuck out of the way. Yeah, it's like, it's different <laughs> kinds of dangers, right? It's the difference between, like, operating a motorized thing that, like, crushes your entire arm or whatever, versus not having that and blowing up the entire thing. <laughs> right. Um, now, all of this is bad already, right? Now, imagine, if you will, this, none of these devices work correctly. 
Of course. Because that's what happened. The Iowa's ramming arm was broken, and uh, someone who was not in the turret at the time and had been pulled off the turret for reasons undisclosed, shout out to him for getting out of work. Yeah. It would sometimes, quote, take off uncontrollably at high speed, and there's no way to stop it. Whoop. Okay. <laughs> Just, whoop, rammer's gone. <laughs> <laughs> It's like not even attached anymore. You watch this like giant steel beam just like punch off the ship into the ocean. <laughs> the rammer man uh, for that specific gun in the middle was a guy named uh, Seaman Robert W. Blackerms. And uh, he had learned that he was going to be a rammer man that day and had never oh, fired during man. live firing before. Oh, rough first day at work, dude. I, and the yeah, first and last, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, now with that, I get to do the thing where I say on zero uh, nine fifty on April nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine, the crews of the USS Iowa manned their guns about two hundred sixty nautical miles off the coast of Puerto Rico because the U.S. Navy has not done enough bad things to the poor state of Puerto Rico. That's right. Slowly, the guns of Turret Two reported that they were loaded and ready to fire until it got to the center gun. Ziegler, now we only know what happened due to secondhand testimony because th- these things weren't recorded at the time. Mm. Um, and also there were no survivors. So Ziegler, using the turret phone, said, quote, we have a problem here. We're not ready yet. We have a problem here. And then responded, left gun loaded. Good job. Center gun is having a little trouble. Don't worry. We'll straighten it out. Mortensen, who is one of the officers monitoring the whole thing over turret to his phone line. They call it a phone circuit for some reason. I don't know. Mm. Sounds weird to me. Um, and he was in turret one, heard another crewman confirm that the left and right guns were loaded. Lawrence, who was at the center gun, then called out, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And they noticed that there's panic rising in everybody's voice. Then in one of the last things, anybody heard Ziegler yell out, said, quote, oh my God, the powder is smoldering. And then someone else screamed, oh my God, there's a flash. Turret mm-hmm. two then exploded. A fireball between 2,500 and 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit traveled at 2,000 feet per second with a pressure of 4,000 pounds per square inch blew out from the center gun's open breach. So everybody's soup at this point inside that tower. Surprisingly not. Um, Now, what what really happened? Now, these turrets are surprisingly protected from explosive force. Um, Now, if you weren't in the immediate vicinity of the breach of the gun, you probably were not killed immediately. Now, the explosion caved in the door between the center gun room and the turret officer's booth and buckled the bulkheads separating the center gun room from the left and right gun rooms. Everything is separated for blast reasons. How to make an open plan office in one easy step. <laughs> now, the what really killed everyone, because there's like a lower portion of the turret, you could be in like the shell elevator. Um, hmm. What killed those guys was a release of toxic gases, which included cyanide gas from burning polyurethane foam, which covered the powdered bags. Jesus. Unfortunately, that powder bag detail will become important later during the investigation. Mm. Now, shortly after the initial explosion, the heat and fire ignited 2,000 pounds of powder bags in the powder handling area of the turret. All of this is self-contained within turret two. That's supposed to be, like, shut off, right? But, like, the guy, the, the, the rammer has to, like, close that off manually. Yeah, yeah, and not to mention he probably wouldn't have because the breach mm-hmm. was open. So there's like, they weren't getting ready to fire. Everybody was still working. Mm. The explosion uh, kicked off another explosion and then 
either immediately or within a few seconds, 47 people were killed. Now, firefighting crews responded immediately as like firefighting crews are a very integral part of any Navy ship. Mm. And they could barely make entry into the turret because it was burning so hot that the walls were glowing what they called, quote, cherry red. Jesus. It was so hot that firefighting crews had to bail out and they simply had to flood the turret with seawater because they were worried about a, a third explosion killing the entire ship. Mm. Um, once most of the water was pumped out, the bodies in the turret were removed without noting or photographing the locations, despite everybody well, I mean, knowing I, a massive investigation is about to happen. By, by that point, like, I'm curious to what extent you have bodies in a meaningful sense, you know? Like, are, are you using, like, a, you know, are you using a stretcher or are you using a shovel at that point? Uh, it, it seemed if you were on the gun platform, like, immediately behind the breach, you're soup. Um, the hmm. people, if you were on the turret elevator on the bottom, you're still mostly a body because people noted who was who uh, oh, okay, on the floor. Okay. Um, but if you were immediately around the gun, you're just fucking gone. They probably had to scrape you off. Mm. Uh, despite everybody knowing pretty obviously this is supposed to be a massive investigation coming up, a cleanup crew supervised by Lieutenant Commander Bob Holman uh, was told to make turret to quote look as normal as possible. <laughs> okay, every just just like uh, paper over it. We're going to pretend it's uh, it's going to be fine. That's actually kind of what happened. Over the next day, crews swept, cleaned, and painted the inside of the turret. Um, loose or damaged uh, uh, equipment involved in the explosion was simply broken off and tossed into the ocean. What? That's just called destroying the evidence, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely no attempt was made to record any of this. Um, and this is where things go from tragic and you know malfeasance and incompetence to just homophobic, seemingly out of nowhere, um, as the military tends to do. <laughs> now, the USS Iowa was brought back to Norfolk, Virginia for memorial service on April 24th. And after that service, a sailor named Kendall Truitt, who was on the ship, was very close friends with Hartwig, who was the gun captain of the center gun of Turret 2, who was killed. Mm. Um, now, they were very, very close friends. They'd known each other for years. And he told... Hartwig's family that uh, Hartwig, you know, uh, we were talking a couple weeks before we set out and he told me he took an insurance policy out and made me the beneficiary. That makes me uncomfortable. I'll give you the money once I figure out all the paperwork or whatever, it, which is worth like $100,000, which, you know, for a fucking young sailor, it's a lot of money. I wouldn't give him yeah, the money. <laughs> even, even more in the 80s, too. Right. And he told him everything up front. He's like, hey, once I figure everything out, I'll give you all the money. Um, and you know, Hartwig apparently uh, rationalized this by his dad was in the Navy and said this was common all the time when he did it. So that's and Truett thought it was very, very weird. But, you know, what are you going to say? No. Yeah. Now, however, this is the first time his family had ever heard about this policy worth around, you know, $100,000. Now, this family was already receiving his military life insurance, which I'm not sure about what it was in the 80s. But nowadays, it's almost a half million dollars. Wow. It's, it's a lot. Uh, every soldier is worth significantly more dead than alive, myself included. <laughs> now, this is all going to them. And the family was weirded out by this insurance policy that began writing to lawmakers and about this random sailor that seemed to have an insurance policy on my son. And that's where we're going to leave that alone for a second. Go to the Navy investigation, which began under Admiral Joseph Donnell, who then appointed Commodore Richard Milligan to lead the investigation. Hmm. And now this should have been pretty easily closed because one of the first people they talked to was Skelly, the guy that was running the experiment. Sure. And Skelly admitted up front that he knew he shouldn't have not been using that powder. Um, and he's like, yeah, I know it was clearly labeled, but yeah, I was doing my experiment. 
Well, lesson learned. Uh, don't do it again. <laughs> um, this was this was not a formal investigation either. Like not yet. <laughs> theoretically, Milligan's like the only officer who's like ordered to investigate this. Nobody's like under oath. Nobody nobody's like Mirandized or whatever the whatever the no. UCMJ equivalent is. It's not a criminal investigation. It's just one guy poking around. Yeah, uh, and that should have solved it. Um, but of course it didn't. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this episode, right? Mm -hmm. um, then came the questioning of Lieutenant Daniel Meyer, who admitted on record to Milligan that he and the commander of the Iowa were very aware of Skelly's experiments. And despite the fact they were going on without any higher supervision or approval from anybody within the Department of the Navy, they were fine with them. Mm hmm. Um, this is when Captain Edward Messina, who's honestly one of the bigger bastards here. The absolute, the bagman in this one. Yes, little, little, literally the bagman. <laughs> sort of the role that Colin Powell took earlier in his army career, that's sort of the thing that, that Captain Messina is in this story. Is he, he is the guy who like understands the unspoken urge to cover up and actually tells you, no, you can't do that. Yeah, uh, he was he was uh, Milligan's chief of staff and doing most of the in-person questioning during the investigation. And at this point, when Lieutenant Meyer talked about the experimentation, he ordered the stenographer to stop typing and told Meyer, quote, you little shit, you can't say that. The Admiral doesn't <laughs> want to hear another word about experiments. And I was never here. Another person added to Milligan's investigative team was a guy named Captain Joseph Maselli from the Naval Sea Systems Command, or NAVC. I said before that he's the bagman, uh, but Maselli is quite literally the bagman because all of the powder used aboard the Iowa had been bagged by NAVC under Maselli's guidance as their commander. Now, uh. the idea to use those polyurethane coating was as wear reduction jackets, which was Maselli's idea. Ah, okay. Uh, now that polyurethane foam turns to, you know, a horribly deadly gas that killed about half the people in the turret. That would mean that Maselli had a vested interest in making sure this investigation pointed to literally anything else. Mm hmm. He would do that for fucking years. Now, this leads us back to Truett and the life insurance policy. Milligan had been alerted to Hartwig's family's letters and alerted the local Navy investigative service in Norfolk to ask for their assistance in the investigation. At this point, it officially turned into a criminal investigation focused solely and only on Truett, despite the fact there's no reason to do that. Just, yeah, I, well, we're all, we're all going to be punished for the, the good if weird things we're asked to do, right? So... Now, Captain Messina told the NIS that Hartwig had been at the center gun because he was the center gun's captain and had been looking into the breach at the time of the explosion. Now, I don't need to point out that there's fucking no way that anybody could possibly know this. Mm -hmm. And it actually went against the statement that the first people who into the turret said, for one, they found his body at the bottom of the turret at the elevator, because he was probably trying to fix a problem, meaning he couldn't have been anywhere near the gun when it exploded. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fucking found his body. And they knew his body because he had a very distinctive tattoo that his family also agreed that, yet, yes, that is his body. Hmm. Uh, There's no evidence that he was anywhere near there. This is just something that Messina invented out of thin air. Then Messina told the NIS that there was a homosexual relationship between Hartwig and Truett, explaining the life insurance policy. Again, invented this out of thin air with no evidence. It wasn't, in fact, this other uh, sort of like field grade officer, the flag officer who like 
decided to put fucking cyanide in in all of the turrets, and it certainly wasn't uh, any sort of like command responsibility. Instead, uh, gay dude. Yeah, and in case anybody's unaware, or maybe they they don't remember, you could not be gay and be in the military in 1989. It was literally illegal. Not to mention mm. being gay in the United States in 1989 was not a great time to be openly gay. Oh yeah, they they've had uh, they've had hate crimes of like uh, the closest to openly gay sailors you could be at that time. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a great time to be gay. Also, there's no real evidence that they were. I don't give a shit if they were, obviously, but like they literally just invented this. Now, Messina's excuse for this is like, well, I got in contact with Truett's high school friend, and he said Truett was gay, and they totally fucked. The problem is, is he invented that guy. <laughs> that man did not exist. There was no written statement of any kind other than like Messina's like citation. Trust me, bro. Yeah, just just great. Just uh, going to like high school gossip that you also made up. Yeah, like imagine existing in, in the in the late 1980s as a gay man and like cops from the Navy show up like, are you gay? And you're like, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, now, Truett was brought in and questioned by the NAS, and they grilled him for hours, mostly just trying who to get him Dorothy, to... Dorothy, damn it? <laughs> Tell us who she is! Where is Toto? <laughs> now, uh, they mostly were just trying to get Truett to admit he was gay, which he did not uh, admit to. And they also brought in Truett's wife, because he was married to a woman named Carol. They also began pressing her about questions about his sexual orientation, as well as hers. Uh, if she ever caught Hartwig and Truett having sex, asking questions about how often her and her husband had sex, and when they did have sex, what kind of sexual acts they engage in, uh, and whether if or not she ever fucked any of Truett's coworkers for some reason. It, like it, it would have been bleak if he had like guessed right, and either of them had been gay. But the fact that a, seemingly neither of them were just makes it that much worse, right? Like. Just hauling this poor woman in and being like, yo, how often does this guy fuck you? And did he seem gay when he did? <laughs> Was he gay when he fucked you, ma'am? <laughs> <laughs> Fellas, is fucking your wife gay? Uh, and I do, I do have to point out, and not not that I'm like a journalist or anything, but to be completely fair, they were investigated before for being gay. Hmm. It was in 1987 where someone anonymously reported to some level of command that Hartwig and Truett were totally gay. And the investigation was declared unfounded pretty rapidly and dropped. It's a weird time when you had to like waste uh, waste the chain of command's time investigating. Yo, these two dudes, they're totally gay. I mean, I was in during Don't Ask, Don't Tell and also when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. But by the time I was in, nobody actually really gave a shit. Mm. Like I, I had very openly gay soldiers in my units. There was like, yeah, he's gay. Just, just don't say anything. Right. Yeah, it's like a sort of a cultural change that sort of predated the the legal one, I guess. Yeah, for sure. And like, I can't imagine like in the heat of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, like at its peak, I can imagine a lot of people were getting reported. I know a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of gay people were reported and they did get kicked out, which is fucking disgusting. Mm. Uh, but also, I can only imagine how many people people simply personally disliked that they reported for being gay. Oh, absolutely. It had yeah. to happen all the time. Soldiers are fucking petty bitches. It had to happen constantly. Mm. And like I pointed out before, I don't know or care what their sexual orientation is. What I do know is none of that fucking matters. And Truett's uh-huh. still alive. He's never come out as gay. Like, he's not trying to prove a point. To the, like, it's not like he has anything to benefit from. Uh, uh-huh. And even if he was gay, it, it, it doesn't fucking matter. It didn't blow up a goddamn battleship. 
It blew up because he like loaded the powder bags that specifically said that you shouldn't use them this way into the breach in a homosexual manner. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold water. No, and it, it gets even worse once like science gets involved. Then with NIS convincing themselves that these two are gay, they decide that, okay, we have our result. We need to work backwards from there and prove it, right? As all mm. good investigative science does. Of course. Now, they came to the conclusion that Turret 2 blew up because Hartwig had blown up on purpose with a bomb because Truett had broken up with him. Now, if this wasn't insane enough, soon info about the investigation began to leak to the Washington Post and other media outlets who ran with the story, openly declaring that Truett, who I should point out, is still in the Navy and Hartwig were gay, naming them both and then pointing out that Hartwig was at fault for the explosion, despite the guy is fucking dead. Hmm. Just dragging these guys through the mud for no fucking reason. And reporters who ran with the shit later admitted that all of this is given to them by a source within the NIS, namely NIS agent James Whitener. I don't know if he's still alive, but if he is, I wish you a very good time. <laughs> and he had literally given the entire thing on a floppy disk. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's at this point that like you can tell it's moving from just a simple cover-up where you blame it on the nearest convenient dead guy into something with like its own sort of animating malice, right? Like And it has its own legs to the point that like they know mm. this is a lie. Like there's yeah, no way yeah. they don't. There's no fucking evidence for any of this. Uh and the some the evidence they do scrape up will immediately be disproven. They're like, nah, bro. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But now the story is out there, the NIS had to find something to back their story up, even if it, they just simply made it up, which they tried to do. Hmm. Now, David Smith, who's on the Iowa and a friend of Hartwig, was brought in for questioning. NIS agents kept Smith in the interrogation room for almost eight hours. And I do need to point out here, in the military, you really don't have any civil rights. No. You, you're fucked, quite honestly. Uh, so there's nothing he could really do. So he's kept there for eight hours, and according to Smith, was repeatedly threatened that they would charge him with 47 counts of accessory to murder, perjury, and obstruction of justice unless he admitted that Hartwig told him that he intended to blow up turret too. Now, Smith obviously refused. And at 10 p.m., Smith was allowed to return to the Iowa because the NIS officers knew he had a nine-hour guard watch immediately following that. So he's now been up for well over a day. Hmm. And then one hour after finishing that watch, Smith was arrested once again, brought back into NIS building in Norfolk and interrogated for another six hours. Jesus. Finally, Smith broke down at this point because that's the point and yeah. claimed that Hartwig had made romantic advances towards him and shown him an explosive timer, like in a, a mechanical bomb, probably at a fucking Acme magazine mm -hmm. and threatened to blow up turret too. Just, hmm. I mean, that's one step up from, like, pulling the guy's fingernails out. And, of course, what he ends up saying is, like, yeah, he, he like, gaily threatened to blow up the turret. <laughs> right. <laughs> Three days later, Smith recanted his statement because I've never been brought in for military questioning, but I do have soldiers who were. And after you make your statement, you have to be brought back in, and then you have to sign your statement affirming that's what you said. Hmm. So he was brought back in to make an affirmation of his statement, and he was like, whoa, fuck no, I'm not signing this. And he recanted, which you, you're allowed to do, like even in the military. Now, that statement was then mysteriously leaked to the media without any note that had been recanted with his name still attached to it. Right. Of course. Yep. And then it was forwarded to the FBI again with no note that had been recanted and was therefore garbage. 
Uh, now, when that did not work and get you know the big guns involved, they faked it to explosive samples. <laughs> now, For fuck's sake, this is like really like a full court press on this, and you can see it like sort of like spiral, right? You can see it like pick up its own momentum. Uh, because, like, y- you just get in on this to the extent that, like, this has to be what happened. Because if it's not, we might get exposed as having lied about it. So, therefore, uh, yeah. we're, we're going to, like, you know, we're going to lie and we're going to lie and we're going to lie. And each lie is going to get a little bit less plausible, but we have to do it anyway. It really seems like Maselli set them up for what the end goal was. And it's like, if you guys don't get there, I'm going to fucking take you down with me. Mm-hmm. They're like, on it, boss. No problem. Yep. Like all good officers do. <laughs> now the Norfolk Naval Shipyard tested the copper nickel alloy that like it was like the rotating band within the center gun. Um and they stated that they found that uh, there's a chemical trace element including barium, silicon, aluminum and calcium. Now they believe that this was evidence of an uh, electronic timer used in a bomb that would cause the explosion. Now because this is now like a uh, like a terrorist uh, investigation, the FBI gets involved, mm-hmm. and they they forward the shit to the FBI. The FBI took one look at it and it's like, this is fucking garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just, just like reading this thing, it's like um, it's written. It's from the Navy. It's written in crayon. It like, just says "gay terrorist," <laughs> "gay bomb." <laughs> no, not that one. The new one. <laughs> Now, the FBI said they did not believe an electronic timing device was present and there was no explosive chemicals found at all. And the chemicals found on that internal band likely came from break-free solvent used by the Navy uh, to break free of the, uh, the, like the projectile that was stuck in the gun after mm. the explosion because the, the fucking thing didn't go anywhere. And they had to spray it, you know, effectively like WD-40 to get this shit out. <laughs> and that's what the Navy had found. Now, when the FBI submitted their test results, the uh, the Navy then uh, immediately terminated the request for help from the FBI. Great, fantastic! That your only role here was to like rubber stamp this uh, this this sort of crayon thing that we sent you. We can't even get the FBI to be be on our side during the gay terrorist bombing. What the fuck can we do now? Uh, it's 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 not the same bureau it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have a proper bureau that framed gay people for crimes. <laughs> Now, a different Navy testing facility said that, again, there was no evidence of a timer being present, something Milligan and Maselli were insistent on. So instead of changing or admitting they were wrong, they simply changed their theory. Now, instead of using a mechanical bomb, Hartwig had somehow used a chemical explosive, not a timer. Now, this is despite all of their previous evidence to include when Milligan pointed out that they totally found directions to build a mechanical bomb in Hartwig's locker, evidence mm-hmm. they mysteriously lost when asked for. Yep. And after, like, coercing the statement from the guy that he was like, yeah, he showed me a mechanical detonator. Yeah, so now their lie made even less sense. Um, And in July of 1989, Milligan submitted his report, which is 60 page in total, uh, that put all the blame on Hartwig. Though the final report says, again, that he used a mechanical timer, despite, again, there being no evidence and that being subtly disproven and they have going back on that. They just, I guess they didn't feel like editing, which, as an author, I can understand. This shit sucks. (laughs) Um, now, this report was accepted immediately without critique by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. government. Can I say that 60 pages is pretty fucking sparse for, like, you, you read about, like, technical reports for, for, for disasters and, you know, they, they run into the thousands a lot of the time. This is, like, 
padding the word count and like using a larger font kind of like thing. Yeah, barely submitting a novella. That's what you sent a contract for, Milligan. You fucking asshole. <laughs> Uh, I'm just projecting now. <laughs> Never, yeah, we're, we're not giving you that advance off of this. Now, pretty much nobody else accepted this. Um, the journalists, despite the fact that they were fully on board with this bullshit investigation this entire time, as well as people within the government, uh, immediately began poking holes in this, as well as did the families of all of the dead sailors. They're like, no. My loved ones kept complaining about how much this ship was a gigantic death trap. I feel like that probably had something to do with it. Mm. Um, and not to mention, like, Hartwig's family, who kind of sort of started down this whole road with their letter writing campaign, was like, whoa, 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 how the fuck did you put all this in our kid? Right? <laughs> no commander of the ship at the end of this investigation, or even fucking Skelly, got in any trouble at all. Uh, however, almost immediately, John Glenn of, you know, space fame, uh, mm-hmm. who was then a congressman, began looking into the investigation and he had like enough poll to get some weight behind it. And this eventually led to another investigation. This one conducted by Sandia Labs away from the U.S. Navy. Now, specifically, when a Sandia technician asked for the shells that had been removed from the naval gun so they could, you know, look at them for the chemical makeup that they said was a bomb. Right. Mm-hmm. Navy's like, we lost them. Mm-hmm. Whoops. Yep, uh, we we threw him in a, a dumpster. That dumpster got lit on fire, and then we shot him into space. <laughs> Tragic accident. Yeah, the dumpster is currently like heading towards the bottom of the Marianas Trench. For some reason, in Guantanamo Bay, uh, there is just a dumpster sitting in a cell, and nobody's entirely sure why. <laughs> Do not open until twenty seventy nine. Now, uh, when other components were looked into, again, they found. No hints of a bomb, but they did agree with the FBI that they, uh, the Navy had found break-free solvent, uh, which the NAS was still insisting was an explosive for some reason. That's when uh, Stephen Mitchell, who worked in a different testing lab but was coordinating with Sandia, pointed out that the propellant pellets within the powder bags, like it, now when I think of gunpowder, I don't think of like large pellets, but they, mm. they were it looked like fucking hamster food shit, right? Like charcoal briquettes of gunpowder. Yeah, right. And they're all stuffed into a bag, which is then, of course, wrapped in a, a, a horrible polyurethane case, which will then kill you. He came up with an idea that like, hey, these pellets are probably the problem like if they're hit hard enough within this bag they can spark independently cause a chain reaction and that could be a problem because you're ramming it with the breech open Hmm. so like if they ram it too hard the pellets burst and it causes a flash fire when the rammer is retracted the fire is just going to rush into the turret and explode and that's Hmm. probably what happened and you know this might surprise you when i say this has happened before really uh, during, in the USS Mississippi, decades before, I think it was even before World War II, same firing system, same powder bag set up, and that's what happened. And when the Sandia lab guy's like, well, we need your documents on the USS Mississippi so we can compare notes, the Navy's like, you're not getting anything about the Mississippi. Yeah, uh, we, we lost those also. <laughs> it's, uh, it's taking a trip to Cuba. <laughs> Uh, so Sandy Labs like, well, fuck it. I guess we'll have to conduct our own tests. And they, and since they're still working with the U.S. Navy here to include Maselli, who is still on the case and still at NAVSI, mm-hmm. uh, when Sandy Labs asked Maselli, we need you to conduct the test to confirm this this pellet theory or to test it, he refused. He said it's pointless. That doesn't work that way. That's not how our powder burns. So Sandy Labs said, fuck it. We built our own test rig. We'll do it ourselves. Just the guiltiest looking motherfuckers you can imagine. 
my t-shirt saying I didn't blow up the USS Iowa's, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Um, so Sandy Lab built their own. They conducted over 400 drop tests. So they, they had a, a rig that weighed the same amount as the rammer that would hit the bags the same speed they believed it would take to, to launch a 2,700-pound shell. Saw what happened. They stacked five bags of the same kind of powder and the same lot number and the same configuration that it would have been and hit them with a weight equal to that of the speed of the rammer used in the USS Iowa. It exploded every single time and destroyed their test rig. <laughs> Rebuilding my test rig for the 499th time. You know, I think that that guy might be lying. About- <laughs> The like, gay terrorists. It's it was such a success rate. Uh, one of the technicians like commented like it was almost like it was meant to do this. <laughs> Just not what you want to hear when it comes to like blowing up a battleship it on accident. Works perfectly. The uh, the button that destroys the <laughs> destroys the entire ship. Now, the Navy did not backpedal on their test. However. They did immediately halt further use of 16-inch guns within the fleet, which remained in place until 1990 when all powder had been replaced with a kind that was not apparently manufactured by Acme. (laughs) And from that is where we get our most likely reason for the explosion. The broken rammer slammed into the powder bags with a force of 2,800 pounds force per square inch, which is way too high. Uh, This caused the powder bags to be shoved into the barrel too far, too hard, and too fast, compressing them and causing them to ignite and eventually explode. Yeah, but by a guy who had started work that morning. Right. I I shouldn't even be here today. <laughs> the most gruesome version of clerks. Um, now, <laughs> after this, the Navy would launch, again, their own investigation because they could not possibly believe the second investigation that they launched themselves, again, with Maselli in charge of it, who, by mm. all accounts, did everything he could to make sure that these powder bags would not explode, but actually caused four more explosions during his own tests. Um, he only did ten. Four of them exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like with your finger on the scale trying to be like, don't explode, don't explode, don't explode. Pretty much, yeah. The Sandia people looked at his numbers and was like, he's using 25% of the amount of force he's supposed to, and they're still exploding. <laughs> <laughs> Now, by July of 1991, the Navy closed their investigation, somehow coming to the conclusion that despite all of this testing and them changing the powder, changing the rammer, and changing everything they do to make sure this would not explode again, they simply said, I guess we'll never know what blew up the USS Iowa. Sorry about that gay thing, though. Too much time has passed. (laughs) Impossible to tell. Could have been anything. Um, But we weren't weren't necessarily wrong. We were just, don't worry about it. And like when confronted, like, well, what about like you dragged Hartwig's name through the mud and he's dead? True, it's still alive. You fucking ruined him. They're like, well, we never charge him with any crimes. Like they're they're innocent until they're proven guilty. So like you know they're fine. Mm-hmm. In two thousand and one, the captain of the Iowa, Captain Musali, told the Washington Post, "Only God knows what really happened <laughs> in that turret. We're never really going to know for sure." <laughs> Mash Allah, bro. We simply have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, sometimes your time just comes. Takes huge drag on cigarette. <laughs> it's like fucking uh, the character from us. I was like, do you? Uh, how do you sleep last night? I don't sleep. I only dream. <laughs> like, man, shut the fuck up. And now the only person punished for this entire thing, despite you know the memory of poor Hartwig, was Kendall Truitt himself. Of course. Now, the reason for that was, despite the fact he, he committed no crimes, was charged with no crimes, had never been proven to be gay, which is, you know, again, against the law at the time, mm-hmm. 
his petition for reenlistment, which back in the day you actually do. I think you actually do have to do that now too. You can't just like automatically reenlist was denied in 1990. So like he was a lifer even through all this. He's like, yeah, my ship sucks. The Navy fucking sucks, but this is my career, which is an energy I can respect. Cause that was definitely me through my second contract. Mm. Now, every single lawsuit from the surviving families were dismissed due to the Ferris Doctrine. You cannot sue the government uh, in regards to military affairs, even if they are grossly incompetent on a criminal level for some fucking reason. Every mm-hmm. officer and even like junior officers all had very long, rewarding careers. They suffered absolutely no repercussions. If that wasn't bad enough, Later on, the Navy Reserve sent a letter to the deceased Hartwig's family addressed to him, despite he'd been dead for over a decade, asking him to join the Naval Reserve. Yeah. The only lawsuit that was successful was actually uh, in regards to the book that I use as the source for this episode, uh, when the, I believe it was Maselli, sued them for libel, and they settled out of court. (laughs) Maselli at least never made admiral. Like, he retired as a captain. So that that puts the navy ahead of 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 the army in terms of like your your bagman for this stuff doesn't at least then become you know a, a general officer. G- makes admiral in just enough time to get caught up in Fat Leonard. <laughs> <laughs> now, Alice, uh, we do a thing on this show called Questions from the Legion, um, mm. and that is uh, if if you donate to the show, you can ask us a very unimportant question. We answer it. Uh, as a way to kind of cushion the blow from whatever horrible, incomprehensible sure. horror we were just talking about. Hmm. Um, and today, of course, is tailored to you. And someone asked, what is the worst uniform you've ever collected? The worst uniform I've ever collected? Ooh, that's difficult, actually. I- I'm going to go back to my childhood here, right? Because... Uh, after the Soviet Union fell, uh, like I was born in 1991, so the Soviet Union uh, like collapsed a couple of months after I was born. Uh, and as a kid, I went to visit uh, Russia uh, with my uh, with my family. And this was at the point where like the sell off was fully in effect, right? You could buy right. pretty much any Soviet implement from you know if you, if you wanted a crate full of AKs, I think you could have got them in Moscow fairly easily. Um, but uh, me being a kid, right, I, I went. Around uh, the Kremlin, I went around Arbatskaya, and there were guys selling Soviet uniforms everywhere. And so I picked up this, um, like this Soviet tank cruise parade uniform in this hideous shade of blue, and I was so so happy with this fucking like uh, like petrol blue suit jacket with the black collar tabs on it. Uh, and like just in the way that you are as a kid, so that that's my answer. Um, is yeah, sort of nineties Soviet tank officer parade uniform. I, I obviously the tanker in me absolutely wants that uniform. Um, and I know it's I've never seen it, but I I just know it looks disgusting. They're like the because the, the, they came in like two flavors, right? Like service dress and parade dress or whatever. Right. And like the 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 green one looks fine. Looks good. It's like what you imagine like a, a Soviet uniform to look like. And then inexplicably, just for like you know. Uh, you know, May Day parades and stuff. They also did a blue one, and it's just the worst color I can ever like imagine a uniform being. I'm going. I'm, by the time this episode comes out, I'll already be in Armenia. But when I go, I'm going to try to get those grotesque uh, berets with the flag on them. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can probably I, get a couple of those. <laughs> there's, there's actually, there's a lot of fucked berets that would be strongly in the running. And I think the, the weirdest item that I own um, to this day is I, I got this thrown in with a, with a, um, like a set of coveralls that I ordered, but I got a beret from from the from from Russia that's in camouflage. It's in digital camouflage. Oh fuck yes! And and it's 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 not wool. It's or, or any kind of fabric. It's ripstop nylon. So you can't mold this fucking thing. It just sits <laughs> on your head like a chef's hat. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. That reminds me of fuck. What country is that? Tajikistan's like national police director. Mm. Had a digital patterned peaked cap <laughs> that rolls. It, it it was simultaneously the worst and best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to try to track down some very cursed old relics that I can find when I'm there. Mm. Yeah, there's gotta be a ton. I'll see if I can just buy a tank. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just ship it back. Yeah, right. I'll declare it at customs. It's fine. Mm. Alice, thank you so much for uh, joining me. I've wanting to get you on the show absolute pleasure anytime and you're you're most welcome on all three of the the podcasts <laughs> I, i've got two out of three i just needed i need an excuse to talk about james bond now yeah absolutely i mean fr- frankly just pick a movie yeah i guess this is the place to to plug your shows if for anybody that listens to this show that for some reason d- does not listen to yours somehow yeah, listen, listen to Kill James Bond, listen to Trash Future, listen to Well, There's Your Problem, follow me on Twitter at Alice Avazandam, and uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. And, and until next time, uh, uh, don't blow up a turret with you in it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't, 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 don't do that. <laughs>